I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Oz Business Australia's only live streaming business markets channel. Great to have your company as we kick off the afternoon with the call. 60 minutes of analysing 10 stocks plus a stock of the day. The 10 stocks you've suggested we take a look at. I put them to an expert panel. Um, what a panel it is today. And what an interesting list of stocks, too. Uh, um, a number of them haven't come up on the call um, before. So we hopefully we'll be um, uncovering some real investment pearls. And that could be an indication of one of the companies that uh, we look at as well. But uh, very big welcome to uh, always Claude Walker from A Rich Life um, down on the, the South Coast. Claude, how are you, sir? I'm feeling very joyous, David. Uh, being able to go for a swim and talk stocks for an hour is pretty much perfection for me, so <laughs> very happy to be here. Yeah, great to have you aboard as usual. And um, I noticed some of my research for the stocks today that uh, uh, you've been writing about them in a rich life as, as well, so you've given me great background to make me sort of fudge my way through some of these stocks. So it's terrific. I thank you for that from the very start. I hope I can remember what I wrote. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, the first one you did, uh, you got in and out of. So I'll remind you of that shortly. Uh, Luke Winchester from Merriweather Capital uh, joins us in the studio here at Brangaroo, which is great rather than online from uh, from Newcastle. Mate, good to have you aboard. Thank you. Yeah, the Sydney uh, Newcastle bubble's open. So first chance I could, here I am. Wow. yeah, Particularly when you've got a new fund you're about to launch as well. You're on the hustings, raising some, some money for it. Tell us about it. I am, yeah. So uh, spent uh, early parts of the week in Melbourne and last couple of days here in Sydney. Um, managed to squeeze in the research for the call. Don't worry, I've got some good analysis know, good. for everybody. But um, I don't doubt that. Yeah, don't doubt that no, at all. <laughs> but uh, new fund launched on Monday, so ah, very exciting. So what's your call? Merriweather Capital Inception Fund. Um, so... An extension of sort of what I've always loved, which is micro-cap investing, and we've got a few good ones to talk about today. Ah. So, yeah, if anyone's so interested... So it'll be a micro-cap specialising fund? Yeah, pure micro-cap fund. So a little right. bit of a point of difference. Yeah. Um, you know, some funds put micro-cap on the label. I'd argue they, you know, probably aren't truly in that space. So, right. you know, very exciting to, to be yeah. one of just a handful of funds, I think, really, you know, oh, excel in that space. Uh, what's the minimum? Uh, $50,000 minimum okay. for wholesale investors, yeah. Okay, so it's for sort of self-managed super funds and that sort of yeah, market yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, look, it's, it's up the risk scale, managers. obviously, with yep. micro caps. But, you know, for people who are familiar with me and my process, you know that, um, you know, I just focus on good, profitable, growing businesses. They just happen to be smaller. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's where you see the opportunities. Oh, so, that's yeah. interesting. I'll have to have a look at that. Um, and go to Merriweather Capital website if people want any more details. Yeah, merriweathercapital.com.au or just email, email me, Luke at Merriweather Capital. Okay. Terrific. Um, Claude, do you rate him? I do, and I'm glad you asked that because I was about to jump in and, and say by way of disclosure that I actually have a small investment in Luke's fund. Uh, so, Oh, so uh, you've already that, put some money in? 
Yeah, I think I was one of the earlier people just to put uh, some money in his fund. That's what I kind of look for. Is uh, up. And, he's not the only uh, fund manager that I've got a little bit of family money with, but I tend to tend to look for um, up and coming small cap investors that are at the beginning of their fund because basically, uh, when their fund is smaller, it's easier for them to outperform. What can happen very easily is that a good investor yeah. can get their fund too big, and then it's actually hard for them to to. Um, perform anymore so right. I guess watch out Luke when you get too big I might I might withdraw <laughs> oh he's got he's going to be one of, one of those investors you got to hate yeah is he? and I'll quickly repay <laughs> the uh the support I'm actually a, a subscriber to Rich Life as well oh, um so oh, okay you, know, you too it's a it's a very you, you know, too get a room <laughs> all right I didn't even know that <laughs> thanks Luke <laughs> All right, let's get into it. And uh, stock of the day suggestion from uh, from Claude, uh, market darling satire, um, out today saying it's signing an agreement with international fashion group OTB Spa to directly integrate products from its licensed brand portfolio into Setai's platform, uh, shaping up to be a big player in the space with its $1.7 billion market cap now, trumping that of Kogan and Meyer would you believe? Uh, check in on how the shares are faring so far. Uh, down a bit on the day, but um, Setire Claude has been a really strong performer, only a recent listing. Um, got a bit attacked by the Financial Review at one stage, didn't it? Um, it's a, a luxury uh, brands platform. Yes, it is. And uh, I think that what you were alluding to there is how Setire seems to have uh, managed to pull off its uh, really fast growth is uh, through some sort of uh, grey market channels, uh, which has yeah. then allowed them to um, undercut sometimes or offer very competitive prices and then also spend a lot on Google advertising to get those prices in front of the of the audience. Yeah. And there's there's been some suggestion, and in, indeed, I think as you alluded to, I previously owned this stock and then sold it and um, basically, I, the concern for me was that I wasn't sure how sustainable this kind of uh, sales channel and this strategy was. And oh boy, have I been wrong to sell um, because I think I sold a little bit above a dollar or, or even below some wow. as well. And as you yeah. can see, you know, there's, it's like the absolute blessing I can give a stock is to sell it instant <laughs> double. Um, but they've done really well uh, in terms of. Um, growing the business, but they've still used that sort of some sort of strategy where they do pay a lot in um, paid advertising and that kind of thing. So they're not profitable. They haven't been profitable yet, um, even though they have quite a lot of revenue. And so there's still that kind of potential weakness in the business model. But I guess why the news today was interesting was because you could argue that these kind of deals, like what it um, signed with um, OTB SPA, um, that can help de-risk that um, that. The, the, that channel risk and the fact that, that these relationships now, if they become more official, well, maybe it makes maybe it does take away some of Setai's competitive advantage, but it also makes the business much more sustainable. And if it already has scale because it got scale, then that could put it in a great position. Mm. I don't own shares now. This is one I've missed out on, but I do think it's an informative story. Okay, so would you buy it at four fifty though? I, I, I might I might just be anchoring to the fact that I sold it so much lower, but no, no, I wouldn't. I think right. it fundamentally doesn't feel right to me that it, it's um, got such a big market cap, but if it just keeps on growing and then does turn to profitability, mm. it has more of a global 
aren't runway there. So he could well justify it. I certainly wouldn't bet against it, but no, it's not for me. Yeah. Luke, what do you think? Yeah, look, I agree mostly with Claude, um, particularly on that bull case. Uh, and even the market cap today, $1.7 billion. If, if that bull case does play out over the next few years, that's, that's cheap. Um, you touched on the AFR and, and, and highlighting some of the issues they saw around that grey market wholesale. Where exactly are they sourcing their products from? Yes. Um, and then the, the big question, because um, this came up as a suggestion when I was on a few weeks ago, and, and I sort of said, the unknown for me is when will the brands try to get control over the Setire platform as right. it becomes a bigger and bigger source of distribution? Today's announcement, I think, starts to head down that path of brands controlling their product on the platform. They're... My, my main concern was always around the pricing. Claude alluded to it there. Their main, um, I guess, competitive difference to, to some other luxury platforms is the discounting they're able to offer. Now, of course, these luxury brands uh, you know, famously will burn product rather than discount it to try and maintain a perception of luxury. So as the brands become more direct with Setire, with distribution and sourcing, the question becomes, will they also take control of the pricing and does Setire lose that advantage? Yeah. A lot of unknowns for me. The valuation, I agree with Claude. The best I could say is a hold. Um, I think on that strong run, though, if you have held it for a while, I'd, I'd probably actually take a bit of profits. Right. Um, there was also an operational update today, and, and just as a bit of a, um, I guess, rule of thumb for me, if you have a, a good operational update like they had today and shares are flat or slightly down, it might suggest the market's already pricing in a lot of what's um, sort of um, you know, growth that's coming through anyway. So right. maybe take profits if you're there. Um, but uh, still a few question marks as to how that business sort of okay. evolves over the next few years. All right. Anil wants a view, uh, Luke on Ansarada, uh, saying, can you get Luke to have a look at it for me? This should be in the small cap space, which is his area of specialty. They continue to grow their top line. And their uh, recent acquisition of Triline seems to be synergistic. Uh, what's your view on the outlook? Um, a good quarterly report of software as a service business model is a, with uh, mainly for financial institutions, financial planners and the like. But uh, uh, I noticed a rich life um, covered it as well only uh, a couple of months ago. Um, and Claude, you bought shares, rallied 50% and then you sold out. Um, yeah. Um, so um, you've been following it as well. Let's let's uh, start out with Luke, though. Um, I was actually going to make that point that, uh, ironically enough, um, Anil mentioned me specifically, but I, I am aware Claude probably knows this one better than me. Um, interesting business that Core Software is that data room where sensitive data and financial data is, is held safely for M&A corporate activity, so various yep. parties can access it without it being compromised in some way. Um, the acquisition they made recently, it, it was very small, um, you know, about $2 million, and, and these guys do about $10 million of revenue a quarter. So from a revenue point of view, only small, but it, it did seem quite strategic. And management actually did a video call to go into the strategy of the acquisition, which I, I quite liked. Um, 200 mil market cap, run rating about 45 mil revenue. It looks cheap on that basis. I actually jotted down a little note to myself here, which is um, I suspect, though, they don't have a recurring revenue base uh, because they don't explicitly mention um, annualised recurring revenue. So I suspect their revenue is, is probably use-based on customers using the product rather than just paying a, a subscription. Um, Claude may know more about that, and, and hopefully he can sort of um, um, flesh that out a bit more in a second. But... If that is the case, my concern is they may be over-earning in this current environment. We know it's very hot with M&A. We know it's very hot with corporate activity. So if that's the case that they are being paid on a use basis, they, it could just be tread a little bit carefully around if you see some, some pullbacks there. 
Other than that, their first quarter update I thought was great. All the metrics yeah. go in the right direction, quarter on quarter. Um, the one sort of thing I did notice was their cash flow was um, slightly negative on last year, but I actually forgive them for that because their, um, their, their customer acquisition metrics are quite strong. On my rough numbers, well, they, they sort of explicitly say it costs them about $3,000 to acquire a customer. They get a payback in about nine months because uh, oh, they've got very okay. high gross margins. So, you know, I, I, I tend to think that like it looks okay. My main question and why I've said hold is just around that revenue. If it's, if it's a genuine recurring revenue business, um, I'll probably swing to a buy, to be honest. But yeah. I do suspect it's use-based, and, and I think the environment, it's, it's probably just over-earning right now. Okay. Um, so, Claude, you bought in at a dollar, sold around a dollar fifty. which if we look on the 12-month chart, this is what you said oh, in Roots Life. Did I say Oh, well, um, you're, you're being a bit too generous to me then. Um, I'll have to correct the record there. I actually, um, I've, I'll have to check if I uh, gave that impression, but I actually sold out at uh, more closer to a dollar uh, thirty. Uh, right, than a dollar okay. fifty, and I, I didn't. I didn't. So what happened was I bought, and and you probably read that one. Yeah. And um, and those, you needed to fund other guess, purchases. Uh. Yeah. So I sold some out, but I thought I actually wrote it down. If if we go, I don't know if we have a longer chart for it though. But I'd uh, I'd written it down. Oh, that, that does look a bit strange. That chart. I don't think you can see it quite properly. But um, basically, what happened is I sold out completely, and I didn't make I didn't make money off that either. Um, and then what happened most recently was they did this acquisition of um, this new smaller company that has more higher recurring revenue. Right. And on that day, I actually bought some shares on that day. And then that's when you can see on the chart, the, the chart immediately started right. going up after that. Because what happened, the order of events were, they announced at 8 a.m. on the morning of the 13th of October, this announcement. I thought, oh, wow, this announcement looks a great fit because... Um, Basically, it has a higher degree of retent, re, uh, recurring revenue than does the more deal-based um, software that Luke was talking about, which yeah. is correct in saying it's it's not it's more a little. Some of it's sort of recurring because you'll have a, a consultancy that's constantly doing deals, but some of it isn't really recurring. It's just deal. But they still have the they have an in there and they have a sales channel there. So buying this more recurring business, even though it's smaller, it's faster growing and it's stickier revenue. That's put that last rocket under the share price so you right. can see just um, towards the very end. And then what happened is after I bought shares, but only a tiny amount of shares, Anstrata didn't waste any time telling people about this deal. And they did a lot of um, investor relations and emailed um, a lot of people's like hot copper about that and then their quarterly results. So they've just gone and put out um, you know, this massive change of sentiment that's just shot the share price up. Here I am quite flukily just holding a small amount of shares way less than the original trade which you described, <laughs> which I didn't right. even make money on. Um, and now I'm just sitting there basically being like, oh, this is nice, the share price has gone up, but it's mostly just because of this one deal. Who knows how, how good it really will be. I still currently hold some shares right now, but unfortunately um, I see this more as like a medium quality software business. So that's why I'm more inclined to maybe buy when I think it's cheap and then sell and that kind of thing, because right. it's not a long-term hold for me. And I note that shares are coming out of escrow from February 2022. And when you have shares come out and hit the market, that can sometimes push, right. push the share price back down. So all else being equal, I'd say I'm probably planning to sell my shares uh, before then. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, Brooke wants a view where Claude on Rectify Technology. Uh, Brooke says, what's the future for this small cap given the shift to EVs? It... Um, Manufacturers and suppliers electronic products for power rectifiers. 
which is power supplies and transport, telecommunication and things like that, but including electric vehicles. Is this going to uh, uh, snag on to the EV lithium sort of bandwagon, do you reckon? Well, actually, um, I think that is one of the better small caps to actually try and play that EV uh, thematic. And I think, unfortunately, this episode is going to highlight one of my biggest weaknesses in invest as an investor, which is that I don't I, I overtrade massively. So a lot of these small caps at one point I have bought and then I've got bored of and not held on. And I think Luke might have done a better job with Rectifier than I have. I don't own shares in Rectifier, um, but I have over the years many times precisely because these guys generally will they do provide um, parts for electric car uh, charging infrastructure and potentially solar stuff as well. So they are definitely part of that trend. Not only that, but they have been profitable. They pay dividends. So that puts them in a whole different class of company than, uh, you know, a hopeful miner or whatever it is, you know, geothermal with lithium or whatever it's going to be. That might have no revenue, could be quite high risk. Whereas these guys actually quite um, founder-led and, you know, a lot of insider ownership. They seem aligned. They try to make a... Uh, profitable company the only thing is that because it's sort of a manufacturing company like that it can have a lot of operating leverage so profits can be jumpy i'm sure luke has some great insights onto the business compared to me though because he's actually i believe been a long-term supporter of this stock whereas i've just sort of liked that thematic that you name right sure would you be in it now or not i I'm not in it. I don't. I don't own shares in it. But if I own shares in it, I wouldn't be selling because right. that's the precise mistake I've made many times over the years with this stock. Yep, Blue. Um, yeah, Claude's right. I, I do currently own it for disclosure. Um, so their core product is a rectifier. Basically, switches power from AC to DC and, and vice versa. Right. Um, you touched on it, Koshi, years ago. The core markets were manufacturing, defence, utilities. You know, steady business but boring. A few years ago, transitioned to electric vehicles, and they've been pretty successful. And, and most of that success has come from um, riding on the coattails of Tritium, which is the Brisbane-based um, business, which is about to um, um, list on the NASDAQ through a SPAC, um, valued, I think, over $2 billion, actually. Uh, very good Aussie success story. So Rectifier have an exclusive manufacturing agreement, supply agreement with Tritium for um, Rectifiers going into all of their charges over 75 kilowatts, which is most of the charges they do. So m more electric vehicle charges are becoming higher powered because gone are the days where people are willing to sit there with their electric vehicle on the charger for five, six hours until it charges. Now it's, you know, I want it done in, yep. you know, 15, 20 minutes, which you need those, those high powered charges to achieve. So Rectifier helps Tritium do that. They've got the um, supply agreement with them. And, and, and you know, uh, back in, I think, FY19 before COVID hit, Tritium made up an insane proportion of their revenue. So big customer concentration risk. So bear that in mind. I've, I've got that by far as the biggest risk to this business, but it's also the biggest opportunity. So you follow Tritium. Now they were a private business, so it's difficult to get information about them. Now they are listing on the NASDAQ, they're obviously providing quarterly updates and reports. In their last report, they called out that business is booming in that electric vehicle charger market. Governments are throwing a lot of money at it. Scott Morrison came out um, only yeah. the other week and 
committed um, you know, several billion dollars to building out the charging network in Australia, which is uh, why we saw the spike in uh, Rectify Technologies price as well. Um, but Tritium have already called out that they are ramping up inventory and manufacturing for, for the boom that they can see. So for me, that's a, a very you know, short-term commentary boost for Rectify. They'd be, they'd be supplying that inventory to Tritium to, to um, develop these charges. I think it bodes well from the short term. Longer term, they're trying to move up that chain and develop their own charges. That's risky, but if they can pull it off, they'll obviously do very well. They have been successful in bringing products to market in the past, which Claude was sort of alluding to. They've, you know, a, a very good little business. I still own it. I have to say bye. Um, okay. it's, it's, it's had a good so run. it's good management, good founders Claude, involved. Claude touched on it. These guys, like um, this business, quick rewind, this business nearly went bankrupt only sort of five, six years ago, and, and they brought it back from the brink, uh, funded it with director loans. Um, they've brought several products to market, switched to EVs very successfully. So... You know, I've got no okay. reason not to continue to back them to, to achieve those visions. And it's, you know, it will be volatile. The share price will move on, on the thematic of EVs can come and yep. go. But, but longer term, I think it's a good buy. Okay. All right. Uh, Jake wants a view on Atlas Pearls. I'd never heard of this, Jack. Uh, Jake, Jake saying, um, can you ask the team for me? Strong revenue, making profits, cash in the bank. Would love to know their thoughts. Uh, I immediately think, oh, is this like a Paspaley? Uh, pearls, which you see everywhere. Um, it is a listed uh, pearling business um, with farming operations in Indonesia, um, around Bali, West Papua, and uh, retail stores in Perth and Bali. Um, sort of, they produce what they say is the world leader. Uh, they have a reputation of being the world's leading pearl producer, the queen of all gems. Mm. This, this is why I love coming on the call, because every time I do this, inevitably one or two stocks on the list, you're forced to have a look and, and you immediately yeah. just cut through the perceptions you'd have of a business. So um, Atlas Pearls, going into this, I thought this is a business I would never want to own. You're taking on aquaculture risk, geopolitical risk yep. over in Indonesia, cyclical risk around harvesting pearls and oysters and uh, they're just tough businesses. Very capital intensive to obviously, um, yep. you know. Um, develop the oysters over time and things like that. So normally wouldn't even give it the time of day or look at it, 12 mil market cap. Doing this, you're forced to look and right. much more interesting than what I expected. And so it is a real micro. Real <laughs> micro, 12 mil market. But again, that, that's, you know, for me, this is where, where I play, you know, in that genuine micro cap space. Um, COVID hit them hard. Their traditional um, distribution networks, auction, face-to-face auctions, so of course, yeah. you know, impacted very heavily. Full credit to management, they de- developed an online solution to, to sell their pearls and by doing that actually found that they reached um, geographies and people they'd never sold to before. Right. Um, so FY21 was actually a really solid result. Um, as, as Jake alluded to, profitable, cash flow positive, growing, you know, I on rough numbers had them on three to four times earnings. That's adding back um, some accounting um, stuff they do where you value. So they're on a P of three. Yeah, three to four times. Yeah, yeah, wow. and that's and that's taking the time to add back. They they revalued their oysters, which right. you know it's a bit of an accounting upgrade. Yeah, even if you add that back, their operating earnings, and it came through as cash as well. I think they did um, you know four mil cash on a, on a twelve mil market cap. So. I thought there was one possible red flag I saw as I was reading through, and that was they had a related party transaction where their debt was through one of their directors. Went back and had a look at that. Even that's on some really commercially fair terms, about 7.5% interest rates, which for a 12 mil market cap, you know, yeah. they're not going to get any better than that, um, you know, um, independently. So I, I loved everything, Jake. I still can't bring myself, like I said, it's just not the sort of business model I look for. Um, right. It is cyclical, and, and I think it's probably a business where you maybe wanted to own it 
in FY21 after that good result. Even the first quarter this year, admittingly, there is cyclicality was a bit weaker um, than those results. I, I would definitely hold it though, if, if you're right. in it. I think there's a lot to like, but it's just not for me. It's just not my yeah. type of business. Okay. Claude? Well, it's hard to add anything to that analysis. So I'll have to uh, delve deep back into the memory bank and um, re- re- tell Luke or remind Luke, this thing has been listed for quite a long time. I actually wrote it mentioned this in an article in 2014 wow. um you know back Gee, in, from like, school blogging. well <laughs> well almost i was still i was still in investing school that's for sure right <laughs> uh, we all i still am i still am and um basically back then you know the share price was significantly higher than where it is today i think i you know in my article mm. i was reading i'm talking about it being nine cents share price and that uh basically you know, oh, I kind of wish I'd bought shares because it had doubled. But then in the long term, it just goes down because basically, in my opinion, these kind of business models are really difficult. And whilst if you buy it at the right time, right before they have a really good season and the pearl price goes up and the stars align, then you have, um, you know, a really good result and it looks really cheap on, you know, two, three times profit. But it's also possible for those profits to turn into losses if they have um, some disease with the oysters or something goes wrong right. and the pearl price drops. Don't forget, um, from what I was looking at, basically, you know, the biggest the pearl market here is in Japan where they do sort of have the the um, the best sort of farmed pearls, generally Okoya uh, pearls, although they are farmed ev- uh, all over the world, basically, but or in many different places. So overall, basically, the business model for me and the long-term history says this is a tough business to be in. It might be the right time to buy it now because if it strings together a couple of good years, then suddenly it can re-rate massively. And that is a potential way you could try to invest in this kind of business. But that's super difficult and super high risk and you can get stuck in it for a really long time. So for that reason, I'd avoid it. Okay. All right. I like the the use of the word um, string in terms of pearls. Liam wants a view, uh, Claude, on Frugal, which is the uh, app where you compare grocery prices. Yeah. Um, so for this one, probably, even though I think it's uh, definitely got an interesting uh, proposition to customers, I wonder if it will really ma- really make it in the end because uh, basically what it is, it, it's the app for allowing people to figure out at the moment, you know, what's cheaper to buy their intended basket whether it be Coles or Woolworths, right? So that could be really good for the frugal shopper, but the, obviously they're not going to be able to charge the frugal, well, at the moment they don't charge the frugal shopper for that, and why would they pay? So um, the way they try to make money is by um, selling that sort of behavioral data about what people are, are comparing the prices of to, um, they hope, you know, as many people as possible, I guess, in the end, but at the moment they've got, um, they've got Coles. So um, that's the idea there. Uh, however, what you've got to remember is that they recently um, raised capital uh, and had uh, attaching options at $0.05 cents attached to that capital raise. So the yeah. actual market cap has sort of built-in dilution now. And that sort of system with listed options attached to capital raises, that's generally... I'd be interested to see what Luke thinks about this. I'm not saying every company that does that is bad. But that can generally mean that the share price might not go like it, there's sort of downward pressure on the share price because there's built in dilution at a certain price. So uh, for all of those reasons, 
and basically the fact that it had 25,000 receipts from customers, which makes it even too small and too risky even for me, right? So for me, definitely not. But this to me still, it could be the kind of company that if it goes on and performs well, then I might be interested in the future. Okay, Luke? Um, yeah, look, I mean, to Claude's question, I, I generally agree. And like the use of options in a capital raise, it's, it's usually to sweeten the, the value proposition to people. So it implies that the raise wouldn't get away without something like that. So it, it is a, a good orange flag to look for. Um, uh, Claude was actually nicer than what I expected him to be with this. Um, I sort of said bef- uh, um, before that when we get this list of stocks, I try to spend 45 minutes to an hour on a stock, Koshi, to really yep. you know, provide some value to people. <clears throat> I spent five minutes on this, Liam. Like, Liam asked a question about can they monetize this product any further? I don't think they can. Claude yeah. alluded to it. It's almost impossible to monetize this at the consumer level. Um, Claude's got a good memory for micro caps. He'd know in Vigor Group, they tried to do something similar to this called Shopping Ninja a few years ago. Yeah. That business just couldn't get it going. Um, right. as, as good as the product is for consumers as a, as a price checker and stuff like yeah. that, consumers won't pay for it. Right. And, and it's very difficult to monetize in other ways. Claude alluded to it. Um, there's no receipts coming in. They recently raised capital they'll have to do it again uh, for me it's just a pretty simple sell right okay um alex wants to um get your view uh luke on dubber the uh um the software business SaaS business that's all about um audio management isn't it and recording mm. telephony for, for big companies. Yeah, cloud call recording is yep. the simplest way I describe it. Um, they then say they use some AI over the top of that to, to analyse and maybe bring some efficiency gains and other yep. value adds to their customers. But so basically, if some, someone rings your call centre, it records it and then adds in whether it was an angry call or a nice yeah, call. Yeah, well, whatever, instead of just they? sitting in a database somewhere, now it's in the yeah. cloud. And whenever data's in the cloud, it's just much easier to search, analyse, annotate. Yeah. And, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a, what I can tell a genuinely good product. Um, ridiculously expensive was my comment here, 27 times recurring revenue. That's, that's right up there for wow. any software business on the ASX. I mean, uh, z- t- zero. 27 times revenue. Revenues, not yes. Earnings. Yes, no, not right. earnings. Okay. Are, you, wow. You'd have infinite uh, on earnings because they're, right. they're still heavily negative it is growing fast 140% year on year and 10% quarter on quarter so that's you know you're getting growth for that Um, one comment I've got here is always bear in mind whenever you see a company talk about annualized recurring revenue it's not an audited metric Um, the auditors will will audit the revenue metric but but ARR is a it's almost at management's discretion as to what they believe that will be over the next 12 months and most management teams are quite good and they'll give you the metric they use, which is usually just the last 12 months, sorry, the last one month times 12. Yeah. Some get a little bit more tricky and they try to bring in, you know, forecasted contracts and, and upsells and things right. like that. I'm not saying Dubber does that, but um, when you do look at their reported revenue, it lags their ARR by quite a bit. So it implies there's a, a long sort of uh, implementation for that revenue to come on. My main concern with Dubber, though, is I... <sighs> I have never seen this business scale at a gross margin level. So with with software, um, you see a lot of software companies run heavy losses for quite a while, but they run those losses at the sales and marketing level. So they're they're ploughing every dollar they can back into sales and marketing, bringing in more customers and growing that overall revenue and and, and, uh, the, the base of the business. Dubber actually doesn't really scale just over their product and operating costs. And, and you see that if you open up their quarterly reports, look at the product and operating cost line. It w- it's been just steadily increasing in line with, um, with the receipts mm. they get. 
And for me, I couldn't pay 27 times recurring revenue until I saw some real genuine scale over those costs because yeah. that's where you should be seeing, that, that, that's the beauty of a software business really, that, that incremental um, user you bring onto your platform should be you know, 95% um, margin to you, which, which the really good software companies do. So it tells me there's something about Dubber and, and it's maybe more manual than what they appear to be, or I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, I will admit the last quarterly report maybe showed the first signs of that happening, but I'd need to see a bit more. Okay. Best I could say is hold. Um, if you really understood the product um, and the value add on that, you know, um, you could you could maybe add or, or buy some. But but best I could say is a hold. Okay, Claude. Ah, uh, so Luke's done such a brilliant job uh, talking about um, all of those numbers and laying out how expensive it is. So I won't repeat over that. But what I will say is that. You know, this. Um, I want to pick apart this sort of narrative here that uh, you can forgive the high valuation because the growth is really good. Because, um, first of all, they did an acquisition, right, recently that added 12.4 million annualized rev uh, revenue, I think. Um, so if it's like, yeah, there's growth and there's growth, right? The When sometimes it is true that, you know, you can just pay any price for growth because they're just grabbing market share and it's going to go up and up and it's exponential and it's going to, hit over operating leverage that is typically organic growth when the company's actual product is so good that people are just immediately um you know drawing to it falling over themselves they love it but um that's like these guys are already acquiring they've acquired another company so you know it's not all that organic growth anyway so we can at least take a bit off off it from that and then um on top of that i think that it's it's just worth um pointing out that their cash burn is massive it's like 17 million a year so they have a con they will at this rate they'll have a con consistent need to continue to raise more capital and their losses increasing massively as they scale i think it was around 15 16 17 million last year to like 30 million this year so it's everything that you don't want to see mm. double leaves me absolutely scratching my head i have no idea how it got to this level i guess it <laughs> you know if people keep loving it it could keep going up but it's an yeah. absolute head scratch scratcher for me i don't get it and for me, it will be a sell. Okay. All right. Let's just recap the uh, the final five stocks. Setire, um, a no from uh, from Claude um, for for Luke. Take your profits. It's had a great run. Uh, Anzerada, a hold from uh, from Luke. A no from Claude. Rectifier, a buy from from Luke. A hold from Claude. Uh, Atlas Pearls, a hold from Luke. If you're in it. Uh, a no from Claude Frugal. A sell from uh, uh, from Luke. A no from uh, from Claude and Dubba. A hold from Luke and a sell from Claude. Um, here on the call, uh, we've been tracking our own fantasy portfolio since the first of July last year, thanks to our partner Nabdrade. Any stocks that get uh, two thumbs up from our expert panel goes into the portfolio. If it comes back up again and doesn't get a unanimous hold or buy, it goes out. Uh, for the week, it's uh, up almost 1% for the month, 3.3% since the 1st of July this year, up 10.5%. And since inception, uh, 1st of July 2020, uh, up just over 49%. Some of the stocks recently added by our expert panels, Virus, uh, Virtus Health, rather, Brambles Capital Health, Ansel and Rhythm Biosciences. Uh, some of the stocks removed, Southern Cross Media, Magnus Energy Technologies, PWR, and Hub24. If you want to see all the stocks and ETFs in the Coles portfolio, go to 
co forward slash portfolio. We'll keep updating it every day. Having an SMSF is hard? Well, think again. Set up your own SMSF completely online with Stake Super and invest your super with freedom. There's no paperwork and Stake does all the admin. You just focus on the investing. All right, let's uh, get into our second five stocks. And Claude, uh, Matt wants a view on Pentanet. Um, um, Matt is saying Perth-based ISP trying to disrupt traditional NBN services and fix wireless by going into cloud gaming. Um, what do you think of Pentanet? Well, I, I guess I like the disruption idea of going into cloud gaming, ga- uh, gaming kind of service to provide you know particularly fast internet for specific users. I think that ultimately that's probably the kind of wedge that can get an up-and-coming telco somewhere. Um, you know, years ago, we had the play with when Vocus was connecting super high-fast fibre all around the cities in Australia. Obviously, they turned into a much bigger thing off, off the back of that little niche. Now, I don't think this is necessarily um, going to work out the same way. Um, but sort of generally speaking, you know, I don't mind uh, uh, to see, like, you know, a, a steadily growing... Uh, tel- small telco there can you have plenty of examples of um, when value will be created there however my problem is that I guess my approach to telecommunications kind of businesses is that I actually like to get them at a little bit more more of a mature spot so there's one approach which says invest more high risk where the company is still burning lots of cash to grow out its network and essentially acquire customers and build out parts of its infrastructure it may need and then you know in the future the cash flows will come that's a little bit early for me. That's still where Pentanet is. Now, they have $30 million cash from the top of my head, and they only, I think, spent about, burn about $3 million in the last quarter. So these guys have plenty of time to prove out whether they can really do their uh, business model uh, effectively and roll that out. So I'm definitely not against them. Um, however, for me, basically, I, yeah. I think that we're really in a hot part of the market, and when you have hot market cycles, anything tech... Um, starts being thought of as um, the same as a software company, but telecommunication companies are not that good. Um, and no. I only own a little bit of, of one, basically. Okay. No, uh, right. Not this one. Not for you. Luke? Um, yeah, this was another example for me of, you know, the, the call throws up names where you haven't really looked before and it looks it looks interesting. Um, I think I'd, I'd probably miss this one because it floated a bit larger and, and we've got the yeah. chart there, the share price come off a bit, but it's now back around 200 mil market cap, which is, you know, the, the sort of size I, I'd like to see. Um, as best I can tell, that core product's like a, a mesh Wi-Fi service. So they've got towers around Perth and then some other strategic points on buildings to ensure they've got coverage over an area. But they get some super fast speeds. I mean, they claim that if you win 250 metres of one of these points, you get gigabits per second, which, mm. you know, I get... Which, which for a gamer, is big. Well... Uh, if you're an online gamer and playing someone overseas, exactly. often it is... He who has the fastest internet <laughs> Yeah, my, my, my next point was basically that speed and reliability means they're trying to move into this cloud gaming space. Now, that's very early in that life cycle. Um, yeah. I, I play games and I'm aware of what cloud gaming is trying to be. Um, the, the easy comparison to make is that this is video streaming where, where it was 10 years ago and people thought, yeah. what could streaming be? And now, you know, yeah. you, you're either, you know, you could be Blockbuster or, or Netflix on, on that transition in the gaming space. Um, 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether to play it the same way. Gaming has a different, I guess, industry structure and different players and gatekeepers to value in that space. So I sort of put that to the side a little bit as a, as a lottery ticket, Blue Sky, if they can do well there. And they're partnered with some big, some big partners in uh, NVIDIA primarily, um, big, big US chip company. I come back to the core telco business. It has really fantastic metrics and, and all the sort of scalability that you'd want to see from a telco right. um, once you roll out that capex. Claude's completely right. Like The problem with a telco versus a software company is you get the same incremental margins, but a telco has to continually roll out towers and fiber or whatever it is they have to roll yeah. out. Real once, stuff. Real stuff. <laughs> but once that real stuff's rolled out and there's pretty minimal ongoing capex to it, the incremental um, margin's quite good. And, and they call out like 80, I think 7% incremental margins to their mm. fixed wireless. So it's adding customers. I actually got a little bit of a feel of um, Aussie broadband from this one in the sense that they they sort of um, spoke about their net promoter scores and um, customer reviews and and a lot of their marketing is done by word of mouth and and, and having customers basically talk about how good the product is. they're only over in Perth. I couldn't see anything about coming over the Eastern Seaboard, which I think's the you know the obvious growth for them. I just, I'm not sure where they are in that in that growth phase. Um, like Claude, I, I like it, but it, he's completely right. It's early in that in that phase, and with telcos, some businesses you want to be early to capture all that upside. Telcos, because of that capex cycle, it's sometimes better to come in a bit later when they're further along, de-risk. And you see the chart up there before. You can still get some some quite good value because they can trade mm. sideways for a while. So. Watch list it for sure. It, it sounds right. really interesting. A lot of cool stuff going on, but just a hold. Okay. All right. Um, a guy wants a view on United Malt. This was spun out of Graincorp, I think, wasn't it? Um, provides uh, supplies to, to craft brewers, which are, are booming everywhere at the moment. Uh, did well, but of course, <laughs> then COVID hit and that, that mucked their financials up a bit, Luke. What do you think of yeah. United Malt at these levels? Um, well, you're right. Spun out of Grain Corp. And, and it's one of those rare circumstances where the parent company's probably gone on to do better than the spin off. Because you yeah. often see the other way around. The spin off is usually, you know, the, the, the ugly duckling. And with a management team that's focused on that and, and um, you know, dedicated to that business, because it's usually been underinvested in or, or whatever under the parent company, um, they usually do better. But, but Grain Corp done quite well. I had it actually come up a couple of weeks ago and, and thought a good cyclical buy and, and they actually had a good result the other day I saw. United Malt was the opposite. So they were out yesterday and the results were pretty ugly to be honest. Mm. Stock was up I think 8-9%. Looking closer, closer at it last night, um, I actually think it gets worse before it gets better. Um, the cycles just aren't lining up for them. So when I, when I had Grain Corp on here a couple of weeks ago, the thing that I liked about it was they had um, been through their capex cycle as their agricultural cycle was also at its low, meaning that they'd invested heavily in their business when you know wheat prices and, and the drought and things like that. So when that cycle inevitably turns, they already had the capex in place to just um, fully take advantage of that and, and and you know report some really really strong numbers um, and it's all all really strong incremental cash flow coming to them. United Malt's unfortunately going through um, that phase now where they're not only going through the weakness of the cycle, but they're going through the capex cycle as well. And these things just take time. And it's mm. never one year. Um, it's usually two or three. Yeah. So I just think it's it's worse before it gets better. <clears throat> Debt's potentially a problem now more than two times EBITDA. I, I actually think you could probably sell this one mm. and come back to it. It's 35 okay. times on FY21 numbers. And I don't think there's a lot of growth um, you know, moving forward to really make that look cheap. So okay. I think you can sell and come back to it. Claude? I think the problem is I barely ever disagree with Luke. That's probably why I invested in the fund. I'm going to add on top of him again. I agree with what he said. Uh, I think that the lesson we can take, from, like, I think that the, the bigger lesson you can draw into here 
basically is that uh, this is not a um, you know this is not the typical kind of growth thesis that I like to invest in. And fair enough to people that want to be uh, more trying to do value investing, contrarian, deep value. That is a good strategy that you can try to do. Personally, um, it's not the one for me. But even with that strategy, um, what you want to get is something that is at least growing or stable and um, so it can improve over time. Now, that is the story that uh, investors would be believing, right? Because um, United Malt has you know, a transformation program and that they want you to look at a bit the excluding some one-off items associated with that program, which is going to then save them $30 million by FY2024, right? So um, even excluding those one-off items, they were down. So we know the business still can go down. And then even if it comes back up, you know, basically once they've done this transformation program, they're going to get um, net benefits of $30 million in EBITDA. You know, what then? What's the long-term um, thesis that's mean that this will be a compounder yeah. over many years? And I would say that there isn't really a good one. So um, even though it might be undervalued at a certain point, I don't think that's now. It has to be very cheap for that to be the case. Okay. All right. Um, Claude Jesse wants to be on Plenty Group, uh, a fintech um, sort of technology-led business, lending money mainly in autos, renewable in, energy lending and personal lending. Yeah. And, and it's a good question. And look, we are seeing a lot of these kind of businesses pop up which I would argue is um, partly a result of, you know, this new um, theme towards different kinds of online lending. lending. So in a way, a banner pay later, pay later is a form of online lending. That's not this. This is more, I guess, more like a normal uh, personal loan that's facilitated all through the internet, which you can use on a range of different things. Now, they are managing to grow revenue and generally companies that are giving away money can grow revenue. So it's not like, a, again, a high-quality software company or even the EV charger company or something like that where if they keep growing revenue, it'll probably um, mean they're going to get profits. You don't know how profitable it's going to be until you start seeing at maturity how well are people going to pay you back and how much you're profiting that way. So there's always risk there, and that's compounded by the fact that these guys are also in that position that as they scale, their losses are increasing. So um, they went uh, from you know, a cash NPAT loss of uh, 1.5 million last year to I think 2.2 million um, to in the year to September 2021. So, uh, or um, beg your pardon, that might have been the half. Um, either way, the point is that uh, the profits going in the wrong direction. You can buy also loan companies that are profitable and pay dividends, right? And for example, yeah. Money Three, which I have not looked at recently, and I don't own shares in that either. But the point is, I would recommend with these lending companies, it's better generally lower risk to buy ones that are profitable paying a dividend. That way you can see yeah. how you're going to get paid. Yep. Luke? Um, yeah, yeah, Claude and I are doing a great job of agreeing with everything today. <laughs> they had their results out yesterday and they look good at face value, but my, my first thing I thought of was it needs to be put in the context that every non-bank lender has had phenomenal results yep. since COVID. And essentially because the banks are ceding market share to personal auto and uh, business loans, banks are just pulling back to, to mortgages, mortgages basically. basically yeah. Yeah. And so they're, they're letting these non-bank lenders um, you know, take over that space. But you always have to keep in mind as a commodity product and, and, and my way of thinking about it is that these businesses call themselves fintechs, but 
you know, when I say anyone, you go and get a warehouse facility from an ANZ, um, you give me $2 million to spend on Google AdWords, I can give you 100% loan book growth, which is what most of these guys are doing. It's as Claude alludes to, it's can you do it profitably and can you do it sustainably? The, th the red flags I look at when I look at uh, Plenty, Prosper, Money Me, Wiser, this, this sort of newer breed of, of online lenders, is they're growing so fast. And when I look at the older guys, like a Credit Corp, a Money3, as Claude alluded to, even a cash converters who do personal loans, those guys are growing much slower. And part of that may be because they're being outcompeted, but I think the real part of it is they're looking at the environment right now of, yes, we have very low bad debts among the consumer credit space in Australia, but how much of that is just government stimulus? Yep. Um, you know, the government effectively backstop bad debts with JobKeeper. Yep. Um, as that gets wound away and we go back to a normal sort of environment, you know, these businesses, they don't have long operating histories and long, uh, you know, they, they claim they've got big um, data and technology platforms, but they're not that old. They don't go back a, a great deal in time. So I would say hold. The result yesterday looked okay um, for, for what it was, but for, in my mind, that sector is one I just I really struggle to come to right now. I, I think you need to see a washout in the space yep. and to see who have been the, the good allocators and the yep. bad allocators. Yep. A lot in the sector, that's for sure. All right, uh, Aaron, we'll start off with you on this one, Claude, because I know you're one of the early supporters of this um, Australian ethical investment. We talk about ESG managing and... Uh, having that filter of uh, environment, sustainability and, and, and governance. Uh, these were the first to get into it, basically, Claude, weren't they? And, uh, and they, uh, as fund managers, uh, they're now reaping the benefits of it with some pretty good results. Yes, absolutely. This is, so I, up front, do own shares in it and I still yeah. have my super invested with them For as well. For a long time, um, yeah. I have always had my super with them, but now I'm going to take it out and make an SMSF very soon. That's a different story. Though. But <laughs> uh, yeah, look, all disclosure, this is a beautiful business that is doing good in the world, made so much money for shareholders. I would feel I own only a small amount of shares because I think it's so expensive, but I cannot sell my shares and not be a shareholder. I mean, that's only one year. You should try looking at this for 10 years or five years. You know, what makes this business so beautiful? Oh. It is the ultimate millennial um, success story in the sense that this was an old um, ethical investment fund manager that was made many years ago by basically its first investors were boomers who had money. But then it got into superannuation and then it got into advertising, ethical investing superannuation on Facebook, which it did for many years and just absolutely massively grew its um funds under management in superannuation of millennials. And I'll, I'll let um, Luke break down some of the numbers exactly, but let me tell you what's actually why that's so valuable is all the millennials are earning more and more money, putting it in their super, not drawing it out. So this is a great cohort, cohort to have, especially when you're getting even younger people coming up. They have the longest amount of time still putting more and more money in, and it's just automatic now. So their funds under management just automatically keeps going up. And they managed to keep their value proposition by just doing a fantastic job communicating with um, their own customers. Um, every year you get emails saying, which uh, charity do you want us to donate 10% of our profits to? Um, basically, their overall returns for a fund that you have to pay a little bit of money for, right? So it's not the cheapest industry fund, but you still get pretty damn good returns, basically, if you go in their smaller cap or their higher risk ones, which I've generally been in. Um, but also, it's a mixed bag. But the point is, they've been pretty good returns yeah. as well. So I don't see them losing people that way either. 
This has got a great long-term tailwind. I'm sure as Luke will touch on, it's probably a bit too expensive right now, but great quality okay. company. That's why I still own shares. All right. Um, it is a big tailwind, is it? And my um, couple of my relatives work in, uh, work in the, uh, the big family wealth uh, business here, and they said the intergenerational change mm. within those those big rich families with the younger generation coming through, basically switch everything to ESG. That's massive. Yeah, and, and these guys were there first, and, and, and Claude sort of touched on it. They were there well before ESG probably yeah. even existed as an acronym. Um, well, they were there when everyone's going, oh yeah, it's great to have a heart, but yeah. you earn no money and, and you don't perform. And they proved them wrong. Yeah, and as Claude said, their performance is, I think, top quartile for every fund. Um, it's a brilliant business. And, and Claude touched on the secret sauce, which is their demographic skews younger. Yeah. Everyone's in accumulation phase. They're earning more as they get older. And so their, their um, flows to their superannuation products are only just accelerating where most peers in that superannuation space have the opposite. They've got yeah. most of their clients in pension phase or, or, or um, entering into retirement. So... Um, fantastic flows, great business. Claude's right. I'll, I'll mention the 145 times trailing earnings, which it could yeah. be the most expensive stock. Maybe Claude, ProMedicus Claude might, <laughs> might have it just. See, this is the problem. The good ones get expensive. They do. Um, but there's a reason for it. Like, you know, you can model out this business to, to grow for many, many years because of okay. those, those tailwinds. The, the last update, I actually hadn't looked at it for a while. I looked at the last update and saw they actually had some outflows from some institutional clients. I thought that might have just been a handbrake on the stock, but it, it wasn't when I looked at the chart. Um, their earnings, I think, as well, one thing to note if you look at that, they've been compressed for a while because basically, despite being an ethical fund, one thing they were doing, which I always thought was a little bit questionable, was they were very high fee. Right. And they've slowly compressed them down to about 1%, which is you know standard across the industry. And now I think you'll get you'll see that um, real leverage come over the over okay. the fund base now moving forward. Uh, my comments are great business, but I just can't buy it here. To be honest, right. like Claude, if I owned it, I'd probably be taking profits. It's, okay. it's the run's been amazing. Yep. All right, uh, we'll have to uh, get through this last one pretty quickly because we're running out of time. Hayden wants to know: Is Webjet a buy? The uh, the big online uh, travel agent share price up about twenty percent this year. Uh, notice Goldman Sachs have got a, uh, a target of $7 a share on it. Luke? Yeah, look, whenever I talk about Webjet Flight Centre, always have to point out you can never just look at the share price because they raised so much capital during COVID. So, you know, Webjet from a market capitalisation point of view is well ahead of where they were pre-COVID, bear that in mind. Yeah. Um, to be fair, they will emerge as a better business. So management have said that COVID forced them to reassess every cost they had in the business. They think they'll be about 20% leaner as they come out. Um, and they've also captured a lot of market share from those mum and dad travel agents who, who obviously couldn't survive COVID, didn't have the balance sheets and the access to liquidity that Webjet and Flight Centre and the others had. So they think their market share has gone from about 5.6 to 11.3. So you can argue Webjet will be a bigger, better business as it comes out. The, the question becomes, when does travel recover? Um, and it's for me, I, I don't know. If, if you told me that travel would recover fully in the next two or three years, I think today's not a bad price based on yeah. um, you know those sorts of metrics I gave before they'll come out and, and do better. They did 80 mil NPAT pre-COVID, so you could sort of see them doing you know well over 100. I just don't think travel recovers that fast. No. Business travel in particular, um, too hard basket no. for me. And if I was in it, again, I'd probably take profits. Okay, I confirm. Uh, as a person who's just been exploring family travel for a wedding overseas in the last week, I cannot believe how expensive and complicated mm. it is 
to travel, just in PCR tests, if you've got a family yes. of, of uh, say, five, it's going to cost you five grand in yeah. PCR tests. And it has to be to a private overseas. test too. I know. And insurance uh, so is difficult too. as well. And, and getting medical insurance mm. and travel insurance is a nightmare. Uh, everyone's going, including me, woohoo, we can travel overseas again. It's not that easy, Claude. No, it's not yet, but I think with boosters, it will get a lot easier. So there is a travel recovery that's coming in the next few years. But for me, uh, that's already been priced in for Web, for Webjet. So it's definitely, yeah. like I was looking at this for this show and I'll keep it real punchy. Like this thing is expected to be profitable in FY 2023 and it's trading on around 27 times that PE ratio. There are other similar online travel agents in Europe that are trading on about 16 times um, you know, a reasonable estimate of FY2022 earnings. Right. So there's been a real rebound in Australia that you haven't always seen everywhere else in the share price. And so for me, um, no, I would not I would not own Webjet right now at all. Okay. And there was director selling recently. All right. Okay, Claude Walker from A Rich Life. Uh, thanks for joining us from the, from the Beach House. And, of course, follow what Claude says. Uh, on the A Rich Life uh, website and also um, he's very entertaining on Twitter too if you uh, want to follow someone who uh, who isn't afraid to give his views on investing. Uh, good to see you, mate. Thank you for having me, David. Have a great and, afternoon. And, and you too, Lou. Uh, Lou you, Winchester from Merriweather Capital. Good luck on the launch of the Microcap Fund. Thank you, Koshi. Um, go and have a look at it. Very few funds that... Uh, that follow that end of the market. Looks mm. terrific at it. Uh, let's just recap the uh, the final five stocks. Pentanet, um, uh, hold and and a watch for Luke. A no from Claude. United Malls a sell uh, from Luke. No from uh, Claude. Plenty a hold from Luke. Uh, a no from Claude. Uh, no from both for Australian Ethical. Great company. Great performance. The guys just can't wrap, wrap their head around the, the, the share price at the moment. And a no for Webjet. Uh, that's all we have time for today. If you've got any stocks you want us to take a look at, stick them in an email to us. Uh, the call at osbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle. See all the stocks and ETFs in the calls portfolio at osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. So uh, that's it from the call. See you same time tomorrow at midday Eastern with another 10 stocks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.